October 3rd, 1849. It was a Wednesday. Famous American man of letters, Edgar Allan Poe, was found wandering around the streets incoherent, dressed in shabby clothes, muttering to himself. It was election day. Election days in America have been uh, famously riotous times. People would be let out of work to spend the day at the polls. Factory owners would let their employees out of work as long as they voted in the right way. In Rebecca Harding Davis's great 1861 novel, Life in the Iron Mills, one of the characters says, asks the mill owner, do you control their votes? And the guy responds, control? No, but my father brought 700 votes to the polls for his candidate last November. It demonstrates the extent to which the votes of working people have long been controlled um, almost as a condition of their employment, certainly as a social condition of their workplace. Understandably, the chance to get off work led to a lot of uh, unusual behavior. There'd be a lot of free booze passed around. There's a great 19th century American painter named George Caleb Bingham I like. He's, he has, uh, he's in a way a precursor to uh, Thomas Hart Benton I talked about last time. He has a sort of uh, collage effect in his paintings, and his paintings seem kind of two-dimensional, bright, much less uh, sort of realistic, I guess, um, than his contemporaries in the 19th century. He's got a great painting from 1854 called The County Election. He did a series of paintings um, sort of investigating, exploring the culture of the electoral process. And it's kind of a fascinating painting because, again, it has little vignettes and seems sort of like staged scenes uh, that tell a fairly comprehensive story about the electoral process and in the in the very center of the painting there are two boys playing a knife game mumbly peg um, where they they don't throw it at each other's feet by the way that's uh, not always how the game is played um, and they're shoeless and sitting on the ground and they're sort of you know just uh, a few years out from voting and they're I don't know children they have simple wants and desires and concerns and then right to the immediate left, there's a, a keg of some sort of liquor, probably hard cider. Um, and there's a obviously jovial, drunken man sitting there drinking. To the other side of the painting, on the right, there's a man sitting on a bench of some kind of workbench. He has a bandana tied around his head. His hat is at his feet. He's clearly had too many. Directly behind him, there are these two kind of sharp-looking guys in top hats. They kind of look a little too slick. They're reading a newspaper. They're probably checking the outcome of other elections um, because they're probably gamblers. Betting on the election was a huge thing. In the Bar uh, Melville story, Bartleby the Scrivener, there's a scene where some guys are running around um, it's election day. They're running around placing and collecting bets. It was a, 
you know, one of the American sporting contests of the day, like horse racing or something. And then to the center left of the painting, there's a well-dressed gentleman in a top hat who looks like he could be himself a candidate for something. And he's holding up a man in working man's clothes and a slouch hat. And he's obviously, uh, he's holding him and dragging him up the line to be sworn in by the judge to vote. They're waiting, they're queued up to to swear, uh, to swear in and vote. And uh, it's clearly an image where the elite, the wealthy, the powerful are manipulating the working class into voting and assisting with drinking. The painting is, of course, completely devoid of women. Large public gathering of all men. There are people who are probably recent immigrants. There are people of color. There are obviously backcountry illiterate people. There are fancy people. There are gamblers. There are politicians. There are bankers. There are no women. And I say, of course, because it's 1852. Everyone knows, I think, that women got the vote in America in 1920. But what they don't know, I think, is that in 1820, they had a higher chance of voting than they did prior to 1920 in America. 1700, there was a gender-integrated jury that, held, held, uh, that heard a court case in New Jersey. So nearly a century before the revolution, there are already moves to extend full citizenship to women. You know, it wasn't until the 14th Amendment in 1866 that voters were legally defined as male. And then Wyoming gave the vote to women, I would say back to women in 1869. There were only about 1,500 women in the state. Uh, so they needed to increase their voting numbers. New Jersey, in 1807, revoked the right of women to vote because their interpretation of the Constitution included women as eligible voters, which obviously the Constitution might not intend, but I'd say says women are eligible voters if it defines them as citizens. And speaking of citizens, we sure see some upstanding fine civic behavior displayed by these men in these paintings. You know, the, the phrase or the tag that would be attached to the idea of women voting was that they would be, quote, fainting at the polls. Sojourner Truth in her speech, Ain't I a Woman, does a remarkable job of disarming this women are too physically frail to vote argument, yet it persisted up until and after the 19th Amendment. People who believed it should have probably set their sights on making the polls look a little bit less like a bar fight rather than trying to keep women away from him. I'm always saying to my students, it's not the fact that it takes so long to change things in this country that's the problem. The problem is that we erase the change after we've already made it. So the Bingham painting reflects that reality. I, I suggest, recommend that you check it out. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating snapshot of what um, an election would look like in 1852. 
I think it's implied in the painting, though not quite specific, but it wasn't merely coercion or encouragement that directed votes. Uh, there was also some sort of activity that was much more direct than that. There were obviously factory owners and bosses controlling votes, but also there were roving gangs of men who would go out and scoop you up. They were sometimes called election gangs. They would practice a kind of, uh, well, it was kind of like the press gangs that would go and steal you out of a tavern and throw you on an English ship and send you off to war. But they'd take you into a room, often threaten you with violence, um, but probably more generally just try to ply you with liquor and dress you up in a bunch of different outfits and pass you through the polls to vote the way they forced you to vote. It's called cooping. And I believe we're seeing that in the Bingham painting, both in the man in the top hat holding the man under the arms, and also in the curious state of dress um, of several of the, of the characters in the painting. Poe was a bad drunk, and he was remarkably susceptible to uh, getting plied with liquor, I think. And so anyway, he was uh, probably dragged into a cooping scheme on election day. The most incongruous part of the whole thing was that Poe was dressed in these shabby clothes because he was a bit of a fop. He was always well-dressed, even when he was broke, which also often happened. He was found wandering around, and he was taken to a hospital, at the hospital, he survived for a couple of more days. He never really recovered and uh, and succumbed to whatever it was that he was under. He was only 40 years old. He was, again, a bad drunk, but by some measures he was in decent health. On his deathbed, he was shouting out for his friend Jeremiah Reynolds, sometimes called J.N., Reynolds. Reynolds is known, I think, to uh, to a lot of us, a lot of uh, Melville scholars or scholars of American literature, because in 1832 he published a book called Mocha Dick, The White Whale of the Pacific, a precursor to Melville's Moby Dick, and also, um, you know, a source book for Melville. Melville doesn't hide it or anything. He cites it in the extracts at the beginning of Moby Dick. Reynolds was, a, like most American authors at the time, fairly well known as a lecturer, lecturing about um, you know, his experiences at sea, his adventures and travels. And he was a popularizer of a hollow earth theory, often called Sims Hole, that began... Uh, with a guy named John Cleves Sims Jr., and it proposed that the ends of the earth were hollow and they were inhabited by a shadowy race of mysterious people. I don't know if uh, Reynolds believed it, by the way. He was kind of a huckster. He raised a bunch of money for what became known as the Wilkes Expedition um, that explored Antarctica. Um, and he lobbied Congress 
for such an expedition, but then he wasn't invited to go along because he'd made so many enemies and was such a, um, I don't know, disagreeable character. And so he was often into making much more out of his accomplishments um, than he had actually accomplished. So he might have been just spreading some fake science for personal gain. There are all kinds of legends about silhouetted figures against the white backdrop in the Arctic and the Antarctic. In Richard Henry Dana's great book, Two Years Before the Mast, which is really a remarkable book in a lot of ways, um, particularly because he has one of the longest and most elegant sustained descriptions of San Francisco before, before white settlement there, or before much white settlement there. Um, but anyway, he has a, an old sailor in the text. You know, Dane is a Harvard kid. He was one of Ralph Waldo Emerson's students. He's gone on this voyage to try to recover from a problem of the eyesight that he's developed at Harvard. It's a really interesting book. But uh, he's sort of an intellectual and he distrusts things like legend and lore. And there's an old sailor on the ship that's shouting out, Finns is wizards! And it kind of doesn't make any sense. It's one of those, it's like, it's like something Tracy Morgan would say on Saturday Night Live. But it turns out that Finns is wizards, or at least this idea is around because sailors have been to the northern latitudes in Finland and they've seen uh, Finnish Laplanders and uh, the little bit of heat that rises up off of the tundra, the frozen surface, creates a little bit of a glim. You know, you've seen heat waves on the highway. And it sometimes projects the image of those distant people up into the air. And it sometimes can project them at a certain uh, greater distance than you would be able to see them. They're already below the, the turn of the horizon but they're projected up into the air and sometimes they'll flip over and become inverted and sometimes they'll uh, disappear suddenly. And so the idea that Finns was wizards <laughs> was based on seeing that and thinking maybe they, f they were flying. And Sims um, had seen a similar uh, phenomenon. It's called, by the way, the phenomenon is called... Uh, abnormal refraction where the image is refracted abnormally up into the air. And so Sims had, had seen things like this in his travels. So, for instance, in the Arctic, you would see a group of native people going across the frozen ground. They would look like they were just going along on their sleds and they would suddenly disappear and the idea was that they went into the hollow poles of the earth. And uh, hollow earth theories are, have been around for a long time. Sims was not uh, the only one participating in this. And anyway, Poe became acquainted with uh, Sims's theory through Reynolds and then he wrote the novel... Uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket 
It's interesting, Pym as a character, Arthur Gordon Pym uh, mirrors in biography to a certain extent, Edgar Allan Poe. And I don't think Poe necessarily believes in Sims Hole. But at the end of the novel, uh, people start wandering around and popping up and disappearing, and it seems to almost be a metaphor for or an image of the text deconstructing itself and the letters wandering around the white page. You know, sailors have observed abnormal refraction. Italian sailors called it Feta Morgana. Um, for, for centuries, and there were clear scientific explanations of it by the time. And I think that Poe is navigating something about the power of a good story set against the reality of science. Sims Hole was pretty easily debunked at a scientific level, yet its popularizers like Jeremiah Reynolds could continue to make a good show of believing in it. At any rate, Poe was wandering around the streets of Baltimore like that Bobby Bear song. While my baby walks the streets of Baltimore. It's a great song. The Graham Parsons version of it is classic. And hollering out after Jeremiah Reynolds and dying in an alcoholic haze, allegedly, maybe, at 40 years old. There's a drunk history version of Poe's death. It's kind of, it's, it's really funny. I mean, I think drunk history is pretty funny anyway. Um, but it's kind of ironic because, uh, you know, Poe's history was drunk history. Election history was drunk history. There's a history dot com, com article that I think is worth reading that says elections in colonial America were huge booze-filled parties. Booze fueled a lot of American events. <laughs> One of my uh, things my students are surprised at are the extent to which uh, Puritans were drinkers. The Arabella that brought John Winthrop to Salem in 1630 had 10,000 gallons of wine and more beer than it had water on board. Of course, it was a heck of a lot safer to drink wine. That's alcohol content got above 10% and killed buggy things in the water. Or beer that was boiled in its making and killed buggy things in the water than it was to drink the buggy water. So that's part of it, too. Andrew Jackson was famous for his first inauguration that was just open to the public, and it was just a giant whiskey party. The crowds broke through and raged through the Capitol building. They, they camped out on the lawn of the White House. Some of them stayed for weeks on end. It was, uh, it was mayhem. Anyway, like Jerry Lee Lewis, Poe married his 13-year-old cousin and he died drunk. The truth is obviously somewhat more complicated than that, but it's a story that we like to tell. One thing we know for sure, Poe came to his end on Election Day,
Election Day used to be quite a spectacle in America. But despite all that, we've never failed to honor the sanctity of the peaceful transition of power, and that's what truly makes this country great. Anyway, in this last podcast before Election Day, I'm just thinking about fake science and voter suppression and voter encouragement, and I'm trying to draw on my historical understanding of this country to realize that we've been here before. And I believe in this country. I believe in the Constitution, the founding documents. I believe that all Americans are real Americans. I believe in real science. And I believe we're going to get it right.